You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. It's so nice to talk to you. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you, too. Are you Um, feeling all refreshed after coming back from Disneyland? I was just telling you before we started recording, it was exactly what I needed. I literally needed to just reset my brain by disconnecting from reality and pretending I was six again. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Um, You seem all week long in a uh, overall better mood. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, we arranged to have some uh, renovations done at your house while you were away, which was probably a bit of a surprise for you. It was quite a uh, surprise. I thought I'd been robbed when I walked in my door. (laughs) Yeah, well. For the the listeners who've never been to my house, um, for the last decade, I've had, as soon as you open my front door, a pinball machine in my front hallway about like four and a half feet from the door uh wide enough for the door to open um but that's about as far and the front hallway has been blocked um but the pinball machine was so heavy that I couldn't move it myself and I had nowhere to put it because I have all sorts of other treasures so well the other concern was you thought that it couldn't go around the door and I kept looking at this thing anytime I'd come over I'd think to myself my gosh this is like blocking the 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 exit if there's a fire or something and and uh it's blocking the door and and this can go around the corner and you were sure it couldn't go around the corner did the supplier or, or whoever sold it to you deliver it to that location or how did we get there no see you don't remember this but i bought it at able auctions and when i purchased it um you were like on your annual trip to germany or something so you weren't able to help me so i had to hire somebody from craigslist to move the pinball machine and i put a craigslist ad out and i was like i need someone to move a pinball machine 100 bucks in it for you and this guy's like i can do it and he shows up to able auctions to move it alone with his pickup truck in dress shoes and a versace shirt and I was like, how are you going to move a pinball machine, sir? He's like, no, I can do it. I'm like, do you know what a pinball machine is? <laughs> okay. So it did not go very well. He so that's not- how it ended up there. Okay, this is a story I've never heard. Yes. Um, but in any yeah. event, Kyla was convinced that it, uh, for the listeners, Kyla was convinced that it couldn't get around the corner. And I looked at it, you know, each time thinking this thing can get around the corner. It's wide, but it can get around the corner. So. Um, I had your dog and I was dropping off the, uh, dropping off your dog on Sunday night. And, uh, I put a carpet under two legs and then I picked up the back end of it and I picked it up. I moved it around the corner and moved it into the living room to a spot that actually kind of makes sense. And so now you can walk through, you have, you can walk through your hallway. Yeah. I mean, my only complaint is that it covers my very collectible sad clown picture sad clown picture yeah crying clown velvet painting which, which can be moved 
Yeah, I know. I searched for years for a crying clown velvet painting. So still don't have dogs playing playing uh, playing cards. I used to have dogs play cards before my ex moved out and took it. Uh, well, that's something that would you, you would want to fight over, but I guess there's a limited amount of time. If you ended up with the crying, crying clown, he ended up with the, uh, or she, he ended up with the uh, dogs playing cards, then I think probably that's pretty fair. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we're not here to talk about all the weird stuff in my house, although that could be a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> We're here to talk about driving law, and there is so much driving law this week. I wanted to start off with an Ontario Court of Appeal decision. You and I have talked about, um, you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past when we've joked about a pool noodle uh, and being convicted on the. Oh, basis. what constitutes a conveyance or a or a. Uh, a vehicle for the purpose of the criminal code. Yes, is a canoe a vessel? So, as you recall, Mr. Sillers, who was uh, guilty of um, operating a conveyance while impaired when he uh, causing death. Yeah, capsized a canoe and killed a kid. Pretty sad. Um, he appealed his conviction as well as his sentence of six years. And lost his appeal on both counts. Also lost the sentence appeal, which to me is crazy. But anyway. Um, a, a huge and ridiculous number of years to go to jail for an accident in a canoe. In a canoe. Like, it, I, I do, you know, six years for impaired driving causing death is totally within the range. And, yeah. But there's a big difference in my mind between having some drinks and getting in a canoe and having some drinks and getting in a ton of steel. Barreling down the road that travels at high speeds. We're talking about a canoe that was being paddled. Yeah. Yeah, like the foreseeability of causing grievous injury or death to another person in those situations is so different that I think the sentence should reflect that. But, uh, but the, the Ontario Office. Court of Appeal has now upheld it. It's not going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada, although it is a, you know, whether or not a canoe is a vessel was a national in, uh, interest, um, certainly of national interest. The only difference there is that the, the definition has changed since he committed that offense. Yeah. Because it would be a conveyance now. And back then it had to be a vessel. Yes. So. So it's almost like it's settled and it's settled by the change to the criminal code. So I don't think it's going to get to the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, so the trial judge, as we know, concluded that a canoe was a vessel. And one of the things that was a big argument was, where do you draw the line? And the pool noodle joke that we often make actually comes from an example counsel gave in argument. Is it a pool noodle? Like, is the definition so broad that if you kill someone while you're on a pool noodle, if you're drunk in your backyard pool... On a pool noodle, you're guilty of a criminal offense. And the judge was like, I'm not really going to decide the pool noodle issue because it's not before me, but I can say that a canoe is a vessel. And the Ontario Court of Appeal upholds this interpretation, um, dealing with the uh, statutory interpretation question, um, looking first at a textual analysis. And they say, dictionaries 
are a useful tool in statutory interpretation, but a word might have narrower or broader meanings which a dictionary cannot resolve. And they say this is one of those cases. Some dictionary definitions of vessel refer to size. Other include any watercraft capable of transportation on water, like a pool noodle, and others just say boat. So they actually did, and this is what I find fascinating, for a reason that you'll probably pick up on in a second, Paul, they actually did a statutory interpretation of what was meant by the English term vessel by reference to the French version of the same provision of the criminal code. And in the French version of the criminal code, it uses the term bateau. Mm, yeah. And so the court said it's uncontroversial that vessel and boat are the same thing. And it's also is it, uncontroversial. Is a canoe a boat? A canoe is a boat. It's controversial about whether a pool noodle is a boat, but a canoe, a dinghy, a kayak, a little aluminum hulled fishing boat, all the way up to. A cruise ship, those are all bateau. So the canoe is obviously the intended meaning of vessel. Yeah, so when in doubt, look at the French word and see if you can expand the meaning. Now, um, why is this reference to the French version of the legislation so important, Paul? Immediatement. Immediatement. Yes, exactly. Because as you and I both know, and we've talked about on the podcast, the case of Bro is going to the Supreme Court of Canada. And in Bro, the Supreme Court of Canada is going to be asked to consider whether the forthwith requirement, now the immediate immediacy requirement, but the forthwith then requirement in the criminal code for making an approved screening device demand and administering an approved screening device test requires any delay to be justified related to the reliability of the result or the exigencies of obtaining a proper sample or not. And the Quebec Court of Appeal focused their analysis on immediately. Yeah, so interesting. So it's going to be that consideration in Bro, where we're looking at immediate moment and forthwith. And of course, the current version of the criminal code, again, which resolves it. Mm-hmm. Because the new version is just immediately. But of course, the BC um, Superior Courts, the uh, uh, BC Supreme Court, which is the Superior Court in British Columbia, it's the equivalent of Queen's Bench and other, uh, some other provinces, has already looked at forthwith and said that it was immediate. So mm-hmm. we're not exactly doing anything different than what the Bro decision says. And we're talking about the Bro from the Quebec Court of Appeal. Yes. Um, but I'm thinking as a Canadian and a canoeist that really I see a canoe as a completely different definition. And I am shocked when uh, they're expanding this understanding of vessel that it to recognize something that any legislative assembly in this country would have been irresponsible to not have considered, which tells me that they thought about it 
and they thought about a canoe and they thought about the historical context of canoeing and they thought about the historical context of drinking and canoeing and that it was specifically not added. It should have said if they intended a vessel to have said a vessel, including a vessel that is a canoe or a vessel and a canoe. Mm-hmm. A canoe is as Canadian as you can get, right? It's like maple syrup. Um, the uh, it is it is its own thing. It's like uh, uh, carnival in in Quebec, and and uh, uh, it's the same as uh, as uh, snowshoeing. These are mm-hmm. Canadian things. Uh, it's it's actually more so. It's like Margaret Atwood. Um, there should be a specific piece of legislation that speaks about canoes and the fact that it was omitted by parliament tells me that it recognized the cultural significance of canoeing and drinking and canoeing in this country. And to create an 08 or impaired canoeing provision is, uh, is, is contrary to our historic values. Paul. I agree with you. I think the canoe thing is stupid. I think it's stupid. I think there is no, like, look, okay, when we talk about what criminal law is at its core, criminal law is uh, defined in the margarine reference when they made margarine a crime. Um, it, It is a prohibition and a penalty that serves a public purpose. There is no good public purpose served by saying you can't be drunk in a canoe. Yes, yes, people are going to die rarely, but surely in canoeing accidents. But can you actually really connect their deaths in the canoe to impairment? Like, I mean, even this case, you know, Mr. Sillers was not just charged with impaired operation of a vessel. He was also charged with criminal negligence causing death because he was operating his canoe near a hydroelectric dam and waterfalls and lost control of the canoe. But like sober people do that all the time. So you you can spill a canoe so easily. Oh my God. I've been canoeing uh, and kayaking like, one of the things you love, the first thing you learn when you learn how to do those, those activities is what to do when it capsizes, not if it capsizes, but when it capsizes. My, my canoe is the world's tippiest canoe and anybody who gets into it is warned. And I make sure that my children are wearing life jackets whenever they're in the canoe. Yeah. And you know, if you, if the canoe tips over, you try and find the canoe because there'll be an air pocket under the canoe. Well, I mean, if you can't get up to air, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, if if there's a if there's gasoline on the lake and it's a flame, then go in the air pocket under the canoe. <laughs> get, a, get around the canoe, and try and get to shore. Um, we uh, we did have tippy canoe uh, practice when I was a kid, and uh, I missed that day. Yeah, because I skipped a lot of school. Anyway, let's move on to our next topic. No, no, because I don't want to move on to our next topic because you're missing, and I was trying to lead into it, the other important, interesting discussion that comes from the Sillers case. Which is? Forthwith. Actually comes up 
in this case. And I know you said, this isn't going to go to the Supreme Court of Canada, but Paul, it might. Because not only was the court asked to consider the appeal issue on whether or not a canoe is a vessel, but they were also asked to consider the immediacy requirement and the 10B limitation on approved screening devices. So oh, I didn't know that. So that was in the case as well. Okay. Well, everybody just focused on the canoe. I've been focused on the canoe. Is a canoe a vessel? I say a canoe should be specifically defined. But so there was a forthwith issue there on approved screening devices as well. Okay. Yes. So Mr. Siller says that his right to counsel was violated. We know that the right to counsel is infringed um, in approved screening device testing saved by Section 1 because of the forthwith or immediacy requirement. Um, and Mr. Sillers uh, uh, submitted that in relation to his circumstances, his right to counsel was violated. And he asked for the ASD provisions to be read down to apply only at the roadside or on the water, but not in a hospital because he wasn't given the ASD demand until he was at the hospital sometime later. Now, it well, was, that is an interesting argument. Yeah. So it was, and that, could, and that could have some real traction. It could. Now, the officer didn't form the suspicion that he'd been operating a vessel with alcohol in his body um, within the preceding three hours until she was at the hospital with him. So the suspicion didn't crystallize until he was in the hospital, which separates this from those cases where the officer has the suspicion but doesn't make the demand because the medical treatment is taking precedence. We've had lots of those. Mm -hmm. But he says that the forthwith requirement is not necessary under the circumstances of somebody at the hospital because the rationale for relieving the Section 10B obligations is limited to roadside or waterfront demands. Essentially, the rationale as described in cases like Urbanski and Elias, um, everyone pronounces it Elias, but I'm pretty sure it's Elias. Um, Urbanski and Elias or uh, Burnshaw, all of those cases were cases where somebody was pulled over and then given a demand. And you can see the connection, right? But why is there a suspension on your charter rights when the Supreme Court of Canada in Taylor in 2012 said, Hospitals are not charter-free zones. This is a good argument. Yes. This is a good argument because the 10B right, the only reason it's suspended is the speed at the roadside and the incapacity, the, the non, non-practicality yeah. of putting somebody yeah. in touch with counsel. But they do it all the time in the hospital. There's a phone in the hospital. I guarantee well, it. Or they put people on cell phones all the time in the hospital. Because yeah. um, they demand their right to counsel. Hospitals also have landlines. Or blood. Yep. So, so, wow, that's a good argument. That's a good argument. But, uh, and, you know, anytime that they, you look at expanding the potential for a right to counsel in front of an ASD, it's been rejected. Yeah. So think of, uh, think of all of the cases that, um, you know, this was argued a few times, a handful of times when cell phones came up that, look, we could make those calls. Um, there at the roadside, uh, you know, I can phone my lawyer right now. Why shouldn't I be permitted to phone my lawyer and phone my lawyer right now at the roadside? The ease of right to counsel has has improved substantially. So why suspend it? Yes. Well, the Ontario Court of Appeal, in their infinite wisdom, yeah. um, 
decided <laughs> that this is not a good argument. They essentially refer to the Kwanzaa case, which is interesting because Bro kind of overturns Kwanzaa. But of course, Ontario was not bound by Quebec. Um, in Kwanzaa, and I, it doesn't appear that Bro was even brought to the attention of the Ontario Court of Appeal. And I suspect the factums were probably written before the Bro case. But in any event, in Kwanzaa, the court's like, the immediacy requirement commences at the stage of reasonable suspicion and consideration of whether they could realistically have fulfilled their Section 10b rights is important, but it's also looking at the delay and determining whether it's no more than reasonably necessary to enable the officer to discharge their duty, which is actually, as Bro recognizes, a distillation of the fourth width requirement into the as soon as practicable requirement. But they're reiterating this at the Ontario Court of Appeal. I think that's wrong when you consider Bro. I think so too. And Bro was a five judge panel. Um, and good looking judges too. <laughs> yeah. So they basically just throw this out. And they also say that all of the cases that Mr. Sillers relied on to say this immediacy requirement is really directly tied to roadside and waterside investigations are distinguishable because they flow from a line of authority that existed when the criminal code required that the person who is is operating a motor vehicle has alcohol in their body as opposed to who has operated within the preceding three hours. The old is operating cases, right? So they distinguished on that basis, but I think it's a distinction without a difference. And I, I see some mental gymnastics to get away from a more expensive requirement for Section 10B rights at the hospital in the context of impaired driving investigations. Which begs the question, what mischief are they trying to prevent by doing this? No, yeah, because at the roadside, the argument with the cell phones is that the person that may not phone a lawyer. They might just phone their, you know, their their buddies who are thugs to come down and beat the hell out of the cop. The thugs is uh, but the hospital is completely, what's that? The word thug is racist. Some people think it is, but other people think that the context has now become so... Uh, part of the normal culture and discussion that it no longer is tied to um, these, this uh, original uh, usage of it out of India. Uh, point is tough dudes. Okay. Yeah. Dudes is probably racist too. Um, tough isn't um, tough people, tough fellows. Maybe I can turn fellows into a racist term um, would come to the roadside is the point. And they would phone their, their okay, their Hells Angels buddies sure. rather than phoning a lawyer. But that argument doesn't fly in the hospital. No, nobody's getting in the hospital, getting into the trauma room. Well, the likelihood is so slim. Yeah. Um, now, this is an interesting thing. Yeah. So in Ontario, they're trying to uh, to find some mental gymnastics to to um, permit an intrusion into the forthwith requirement. Whereas in Quebec, they're recognizing, which just frankly to me makes a lot of sense that it says immediately forthwith, which means you do it right now. Yep. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Parliament writes the laws and then the court has to try and figure out what they mean. 
Um, and there's a general um, consensus that they should be trying to facilitate the uh, the meaning of the law, but of course they've got to deal with it within the within the confines of the charter. Yep. And uh, charter rights have become much less a uh, thing in the last little while. And people are out there protesting for freedom, and I don't see any of their freedoms being significantly infringed. But at the same time, I can see that um, charter rights have been uh, whittled down. They really have. I mean, even today, the Supreme Court of Canada released yet another um, judgment that uh, whittles whittles the uh, the charter rights. This was the case of Sundman. Um, it's a criminal law case, and it deals with your your sort of section um, uh, your section nine rights, and it is a driving law case, Paul. Tell me about it. Yes. So this is a first degree murder case with unlawful confinement at its core. So as many people may not know, um, a first degree murder in Canadian law is a murder that is planned and deliberate, but it's also a murder that occurs if you're committing certain other offenses. So if you kill somebody while you're committing, you know, you see it on law and order a lot, right? Like if you kill someone while committing a felony, it's not that broad in Canada, but certain offenses, including the offense of unlawful confinement. So the accused, Mr. Sundman, uh, were, was a drug dealer and his victim was also a drug dealer that he hated. They had beef. And so Mr. Sundman kidnaps his rival drug dealer and confines him in a moving pickup truck, hence why it's a driving law case, repeatedly assaults him by hitting him with a handgun. And his victim is like, fuck this shit, and jumps out of the moving truck when it slows to make a turn. Mr. Sunman jumps out of the truck after him. They chase him down, and uh, he gets shot three times, and he uh, isn't um, dead. So uh, one of Mr. Sunman's accomplices walks up to him and basically, like, you know, puts one in the brain. Finishes him off. Yeah. So the question was, was Mr. Sundman guilty of murder? He obviously didn't deliver the fatal shot, but he was involved in the confinement and the, sh the non-fatal shootings. So was he guilty of first-degree murder? And the Supreme Court of Canada found that, yes, he was guilty of first-degree murder because he was still unlawfully confined when he escaped from the truck and ran for his life. So even though he wasn't, like, physically trapped or kidnapped in that truck anymore, he was still psychologically confined through violence, fear, and intimidation. I, I have no problem convicting him. Really? I have a big problem with this. I have no problem convicting him. <laughs> he's he's <laughs> taking a guy. He's going to kill him, right? The, the, the whole idea there is to murder him. You're not going to just like take him, beat him up, drive him around town, uh, you know, with his mouth duct taped and then let him go afterward because he's going to come and kill you. You're going to kill him. Uh, and that was the whole idea. He escapes from the truck. He shoots him. You know, the other guy comes along and shoots him. It's just a party to an offense of first degree murder. I, 
you know, I don't, I don't think so. I disagree. Well, what did the Supreme Court of Canada say? Did they side with me or with you? They sided with you, but that doesn't make you right. Um, Just good looking. Uh, yeah, uh, sure. Um, Same with the Quebec Court of Appeal. No, the reason Court of Appeal in the country. The reason I say, um, uh, the reason that I say that I don't agree that this is a um, a first degree murder, or the, the I don't agree with the judgment, um, has nothing to do with the. Um, it has nothing to do with the Supreme Court of Canada's ruling. It has to do with the problem of relying on the idea that there's a psychological confinement to create an unlawful confinement in law. Because think about the expansive application of that determination. Think about all the times you get somebody who's charged in a domestic espousal, right? Yeah. A psychological confinement could be made out and thus an additional charge of unlawful confinement, an aggravating factor at, at sentencing, et cetera, et cetera, something that mitigates against release on bail with the new considerations after C-75 and C-51, um, you could have a confinement made out by somebody saying, if you leave, I'm going to take the kids and you'll never see them again. Yeah. Okay. Well, as usual, you come up with some example that's a, uh going to take it away from their the context but that apply and of course you know you're right it will happen yeah it will happen yeah it so, will happen and it'll be wrong i mean the court is perpetually correcting itself for fucking up so it's just a matter of time yeah it will happen and then it'll go to the supreme court of canada and somebody's life will be ruined somebody's life will be ruined <laughs> Because some drug dealer decided to kill someone in a car and driving law changed the law. Was barely connected to it. Hey, it's a driving law case, Paul. Take what you can get. Driving law does drive the law. I noticed lately that you've been uh, pushing this whole thing that you're the one who invented driving law uh, as a phrase. You're the one who popularized it. You're the one who used it for your podcast and created it. But I'm pretty sure that I told you at the beginning, driving law, that I came up with the phrase driving law. You know what? If you want to take the credit for it, that's fine. But I don't want to take the credit for it because you you came up with it and I'm, I'm good with it. But uh, I want you to, uh, you know, every once in a while, just put a little note that Doroshenko mentioned driving law at some point as uh, being an interesting thing as an attempt to persuade me to work in his firm. At one point... You suggested we record video for these podcasts. And if we did, our listeners would see how often I roll my eyes all the way back in my head at you. There you go. Another opportunity lost. Um, let's hear about the... Um... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. driver of the week and who is it this week well it's actually maybe maybe not ridiculous maybe a little concerning but i think ridiculous and i'm going to make the case for ridiculousness this is a warning 
but it came from the North Vancouver RCMP this week after a man uh, driving a Chevy Tahoe with flashing blue, red, and lights, uh, red and blue lights on the dashboard, posed as a police officer and pulled people over. Yeah. So what do you do in those circumstances? I mean, yes, I think the North Vancouver RCMP are the ridiculous driver of the week. And it's, of course, we haven't always restricted this specifically to drivers, but I have lots to complain about this. I have lots to say. And I was uh, invited to be on the Mike Smith show today and I was unavailable because I was in court and Grant Gokatro went on and I'm going to have to find it and see what he said about it. But I have lots of feelings about it. Can I say my feelings? Yes, I was just going to say I don't I don't think the North Vancouver RCMP are the ridiculous driver. I think the ridiculous driver is the guy. The but guy. I also think the North Vancouver RCMP are the ridiculous driver. And here's why. Okay, here's tell why. me. Let me make my argument. Yes. Um in the last 20 years, we've seen this huge proliferation of unmarked vehicles. And unmarked vehicles have no general deterrence or very little general deterrence uh, capacity. People drive past them and don't know. I remember God Control used to drive around in a minivan with an L and an N sign on the back and people go speeding past and they loved it because they would catch them. But if they were in a marked vehicle, people would have just been reminded not to speed. Yeah. And if you're driving around at nighttime and you're pulled over by a marked uh, police cruiser, okay, fair enough. Looking back there, you're a marked police cruiser. If you drive 300, 400 meters before you stop, that might be a symptom of something <laughs> that the police might wish to comment about. But if you're driving at nighttime and you're pulled over by an unmarked vehicle, you can just as easily being be pulled over by some asshole who's got red and blue lights that he bought at Princess Auto or online or wherever. And if you drive those 300 meters, before you stop because you're trying to suss it out and you're terrified and you don't know if you're going to be murdered as we've seen this happen in the U S um, you know, you will end up have that having that fact that you delayed your stop used against you. They stopped. They didn't stop right away. Oh, they must be prepared. I'm going to, you're going to, you can get a ticket. You can end up subject to an ASD demand. Um, you could have an ASD demand and, and not be able to provide a sample or have a faulty device or something like that. You could be so terrified that your heart's beating so hard that you can barely breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a problem in this country. Uh, in Vancouver, our police cars now look like military cars. They're painted black and threatening. And I know there's lots of police officers who feel cool driving around in them. We have a ton, a ton, a ton of unmarked cars. And police officers driving around in plain clothes, and they all are excited to become police officers and get a uniform, wear that uniform. And then within a few weeks, they all want to be plain clothes, cool guys from from uh, Miami Vice. Um, I am opposed to uh, the militarization look of our police cars in Vancouver, and I am opposed to the proliferation of unmarked cars and ununiformed officers. A police officer wearing a uniform is a is the backbone of policing. 
it is telling society you've got somebody there who is public, who is who is available, who is responsible, and who is showing you who they are by their uniform and also their car. And that is sending a message. When they talk about the thin blue line, these police officers are always so excited about the thin blue line. Uh, this is, in fact, um, you know, the thing that that you can say is creating general deterrence. But when you're using unmarked police vehicles and police officers driving around in their shorts, pulling people over, uh, and often, in our experience, looking at IRP cases, behaving like thugs. Again, I'm using that term because I think it has been mischaracterized recently. People claiming that it's racist, and I don't think it is. Um, we have a significant problem. Now, why was the North Vancouver RCMP, why do I say that they are ridiculous? They're ridiculous because they're out there driving in these unmarked vehicles and now they've got a problem, right? We had this asshole in Nova Scotia driving around and yes, okay, a very rare occasion that a guy's got a fake police car, but that's no excuse. It's like, it's like you know, the Americans talking about yeah, you, you can also be killed by a knife. They have a gun problem, right? Um, yeah, you could have an asshole with a marked police vehicle doing this. But you know what? The reason that it's this guy can get away with it is because we are so now accustomed to these unmarked police vehicles. And yes, some people were saying, well, they don't drive around in Tahoe's. Yeah, they do. Um, unmarked police vehicles that people do not know. And this shatters confidence in the police. And the police have set this up by this proliferation of unmarked vehicles. My lecture is over. Thank you so much for coming. All right. Well, now I will make my argument for why I think the driver of the fake police car is the ridiculous driver of the week. And that's because of what the driver did. So he pulls over somebody traveling eastbound on 13th Avenue in northbound um he's dressed up wearing a vest and a hat that says police on it he identifies himself as nvpd north vancouver police department eh, rcmp uh he wasn't wearing a duty pelt but he had a baton um and he told the driver that they were pulled over for using gps on their cell phone then produced a debit or credit machine and demanded payment First of all, it's well, this guy's this guy's clever. Yeah. Did he get it? How many people has he got payment from? He shouldn't be the ridiculous driver of the week. He's the cleverest fraud artist. He's very, very clever because he's basically like ex exploiting the fact that in many cultures in the world, in like places like Brazil and Mexico. When you and I had friends who actually had this happen to them in Thailand, when you get pulled over by the police, the police demand payment and that money don't go to the government. But that I money think that's racist, Kyla, to suggest that. Why is it racist to suggest that there are many cultures in the world <laughs> you're, where you're, you're, you're saying that that's accepted in their cultures and it's not? I'm not saying it's accepted in their cultures, but it's the reality. You get warned about it. My dad had it happen to him at the border in Mexico. He had to he had to pay the border crossing fee, and there were police officers coming up uh, collecting uh, the fee. Um, no, this happens in places all over the world where the police are corrupt because of corrupt governments, 
and the police collect bribes. And this is how they do it. And I think this person is actually like preying on individuals from those countries where bribing the police is normal course and and running an extensive fraud, which is not why he's the ridiculous driver of the week. The alternative description, using my defense lawyer hat, for what he's doing is he's just dealing with a gap in enforcement. There's so much distracted driving these days, Paul, that this man has decided to take it into his own hands. If the police aren't going to stop all the distracted drivers, then this is a one-man quest to punish well, people who are using I, their phones while driving. As I was driving uh, home this evening, I was coming down um, uh, West 2nd, where it turns to West 4th, and uh, stopped at a set of lights, and there was a woman beside me, early 30s probably, with a, um, uh iPhone, no case on it, silver, and she was just texting like mad. Like she just, she's stopped at lights and just texting like mad. And, and I'm watching the whole time waiting to see if she looks at me. So I was going to give her a dirty look. I, you know, I look like a cop. I was wearing my sunglasses. Um, and, um, she didn't look up and the light changed. And I drove a half a block before somebody had honked at her and started to drive. So you're right about the proliferation. Um, Certainly. And now I want to tell you another story. I had a friend of mine who was in Mexico and he was pulled over and the police officer, uh, it was, he spoke Spanish, but it wasn't really easy for him. He was from Colombia or something like that. But the police officer put his hands out like a cup. And he thought, what am I supposed to put money in his hands? Is this how you do it? Like you make the, a cup shaped thing. And the police officer explained, no, blow into my hands and I'm going to smell my hands. And it was to determine whether or not he was drinking and driving. So uh, I think I think it's a cultural miscommunication to suggest that um, that this uh, takes place in the same way. And I think probably your father just had to blow in the guy's hands. <laughs> no, no, he actually had a, a border guard shoo the police away and bring him across the border right away. Um, well, there you are, probably because they were so embarrassed because he and Chris had to blow in his hands. Chris Carta, former guest on this podcast, got pulled over for speeding in Thailand and had to bribe the police to let him go. Well, that may not have been a bribe. It might have been something else. Maybe it was lawful. But the point is, yes, you you may be making a point about a lack of enforcement. Uh, I think it's a, um, you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, we laugh at things often that other people would not laugh at. So I laugh at it as a clever fraud. Um, I think the uh, North Vancouver police uh, should actually just find the guy and apprehend him. The North Vancouver uh, police? North Vancouver RCMP. They bring their uh, debt machine? With their debt machine. Uh, and um, and I think that um, they have created the culture where this happens, where any, any schmuck can drive around with a Tahoe with a red and blue lights and pull people over because they've got so many unmarked cars and so few marked cars. And the the visible presence of the police does not exist the way that it once did. In Edmonton, when I grew up, the police cars were yellow and white. And they looked like taxi cabs. <laughs> police complained that people would come to town and keep walking up to them thinking that they could take a taxi. Um, then they changed their colors. Um, nice to speak with you, Kyla.
Yes. And uh, thank you to everybody who listened to our podcast. If you need to find us for a driving law related issue, or perhaps you're posing as a member of the North Vancouver Police Department and you need some legal help, give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.